Smith. Uh, what we put together is a pretty unique package of uh, looking at well-being through the lens of ESPN's documentary, The Last Dance. Uh, with me is uh, Andrew Venick. We'll start with Andrew. Andrew is the star of the Be Like Mike miniseries, the three-part miniseries that we've recorded, uh, which maybe some of you have listened to. Uh, he did his undergrad and his master's in negotiation at Creighton University. He also walked on as a Creighton Blue Jay and played for uh, Dana Altman back in 2007 and 2008. And in addition to Andrew, we've got Dr. Jake Smith from Louisiana State University. Jake uh, does research, or J Jake is an instructor at the Flores MBA program at uh, Louisiana State University. He also does research uh, in the areas of um, organizational climate, organizational culture, and uh, performance. So first off, uh, I'm the principal at the Ikigai Lab. The Ikigai Lab is a purpose-driven change management firm uh, with a goal of helping organizations, teams, and individuals maximize the power of purpose. Uh, we do that through the lens of six dimensions of well-being, which we'll talk about uh, within this presentation. And uh, we're going to thread that throughout the conversations that we've got here today through the lens of uh, ESPN's The Last Dance. So first off, I'd like to hand it over to Dr. Jake Smith uh, to talk about some of the research that he's put together or he has done in the past that ties to, to leadership, purpose, well-being, uh, motivation, performance. And uh, with that, Jake, I'll hand it off to you. All right. Thanks, Sam. Um... Hey everybody, uh, I've done a little bit of work around uh, specifically sports and organizations. Uh, so there's, there's some research that I, I did with a few other uh, collaborators at LSU who are now at uh, East Carolina and Washington State. Um, and uh, one of the, one of the uh, chapters, one of the book chapters that we wrote about um, ties really well to what we're talking about today. Uh, with organizational culture. And, you know, we hear about culture all the time. It's one of those things that people talk about. You have to get the culture right. You have to, you know, you know, have a good culture, a strong culture in order to have a high performing team, high performing organization. Um, but I think most people don't really understand what culture really is. They just kind of see it as, you know, hey, everybody's on board, striving towards the same thing, which that's, that's partly what it is. But culture is really, you know, the deep the deep social structure of a team and, and of, of an organization that really, you know, kind of to simplify it, you know, reflects the shared values that everybody on the team has. And so the reason that this actually matters and why it's even important is that, you know, having those shared values ultimately helps direct and drive behavior within the, within the collective to uh, align with the expectancies of what it means to be a part of this team, what it means to be a part of this organization. Um, and when we think about values, you know, these things that uh, everybody on the team is sharing, you know, these are the, you know, guiding beliefs that we have regarding how we should behave, how we should act, what we should prioritize, um, and even what goals, you know, we should actually have as a, as a, as a unit uh, that are either preferable to us as individuals or to the, uh, to the team as a whole. And uh, again, the reason that this is important is that the more that a team or an organization shares in this, uh, that's what we call, you know, having a strong culture. And the stronger the culture, uh, you know, a lot of research around how stronger cultures tend to have higher performance. Um, there are a lot of other, you know, positive outcomes for having this kind of strong culture because everybody does share in those values. And so when we think about the last dance in, in ESPN and the Bulls, um, and kind of wa watching through all of that, you know, I was, I grew up a huge Bulls fan, um, you know, back in the day and, and watching all of these games over again was a lot of fun for me. Um, but there were a few different values that I saw really stand out uh, that really applied to show, to give us a little bit of insight into the culture of that team. And the first thing was uh, the value of work ethic. You know, I think, you know, a big part of, you know, watching that particular documentary, we got to actually see not just the games, but we got to see the practices. And a big theme that, you know, at least I took away from it was that you practice like you play in the game. And so, you know, there was this shared value that, you know, hey, you're going to have to bring the intensity, you're going to have to bring everything to each and every practice and practice like you play in the game. 
another one was just, you know, the value of, of being dedicated to the team. So dedicate yourself fully to achieving, you know, the goals that they've set as the collective. And, you know, part of this goes to another value of having a high level of self-awareness. So, you know, everybody kind of knew their strengths, they knew their weaknesses, they knew what their role was on the team, what was expected of them. Michael knew what, what his role was versus Steve Curran knew what his role was. Um, Bill Wennington knew what his role was. Dennis was, you know, kind of the, the poster child for, hey, he has a specific role on this team that he's trying to fulfill. And because everybody shared in this, this view that, hey, we have to know what we're good at as individuals, what we're not good at, um, and be able to incorporate that into the roles that we have on the team. I think that was a big part of what I took away. And the last one was kind of resilience. You know, I think they, the, the Pistons in, in particular brought this out of the Bulls and sh showing that, hey, we, we value in not letting ourselves get frustrated. You know, we don't want to let the other team see us hurt. You know, if they see us hurt, that's when they know they have us. And that was like a big theme that came back uh, over and over again with, with the last dance that I, that I found really interesting. But it kind of gives, gives us a little bit of insight into what the values were on those 90s Bulls teams. So culture really isn't defined by uh, what, what the team achieves. It's actually defined by the means through which they achieve those particular ends. Um, and then once you know they establish it, everything that they do through practices, through their ongoing engagement, that helps to reinforce uh, reinforce the culture that they've established. Um, so culture is one of those things that we we can't really see directly. You know, it's it's one of those things that's out there. We talk about it, and the only way that we can really see um, you know culture is through. Uh, really three different artifacts that we call them. So we have symbols, traditions, and then stories. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things that before the last dance and when when I was working on this particular project at LSU um, was the 92 Dream Team practice. So I don't know if you guys remember the the it used to be called the greatest uh, the greatest game nobody ever saw uh, because it took about a couple of decades for that video to actually come out. So the video that we saw in the last dance of the practice in Barcelona um, actually was just kind of this urban legend, this myth of, you know, something that happened in Barcelona back in 92 where the best game that was played was closed off to, to, the, entire, uh, to the entire world. And uh, I remember Coach K, you know, when, when he was intervi interviewed about it uh, later on, uh, he, you know, talked about that shared value that they had on the team of accepting personal challenges, um, being your best every single day, you know, having that, that drive, that focus when you're a member of Team USA. And so, you know, these things, and, and for those of you who aren't as familiar with kind of the, the, the background of that was um, Coach Daly was really disappointed in how the, the team performed in a, uh, in a warm-up uh, friendly match, I guess you could say, uh, for the Olympics. And so he kicked everybody out, kicked all the, all the cameras out except one, uh, apparently, um, kicked every, all the media out and actually had Michael and Magic pick teams. So you had Magic picking his guys, Michael picking their guys. I think they kicked Christian Leitner to the curb and didn't let him play. Um, understandable. Uh, but, you know, it was this high intensity, uh, you know, very, very much bringing your, your very best to that particular practice, a lot of pride, a lot of ego on the line. Um, but it really reflected this, this shared value that, hey, you know, we're going to bring our best to every single practice every single day. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a little bit of, you know, some of the, some of the work that I've done around sports and organizations. Um, and, you know, there's definitely some overlap for, uh, the things that we talk about in relation to sports with the things that we, you know, work with every day with me at the university level, uh, with, with all of you and your jobs, your professions. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely excited to be a part of this today, Sam. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so before we move into the dialogue between Jake, Andrew and I, I first want to give a shout out to Phoenix Basketball who's sponsoring this event. Phoenix Basketball is an international AAU basketball program based in Seattle and Tokyo uh, that's integrating sport and hoop culture with academia to lead the rise of a global sport-based youth development model. Uh, they're doing some really cool stuff. Uh, probably the, the, the simple way that I view this is that they're integrating emotional intelligence into sports. Uh, as a parent, that's exciting and uh, really excited about what 
what uh, Dylan and Victor and the guys at um, Phoenix Basketball are doing. So thanks for, for their support. The first uh, question, Andrew, and I'll kick it over to you first. First question, 10-part series, the 10-part documentary, what, uh, what jumped out at you? What, what surprised you the most? Yeah, there was a lot of surprises, but if I were to really boil it down to, to kind of one tagline or, or one summary, it, it was encapsulated in, in Michael Jordan's mental fortitude and really learning about MJ and the progression of his career. Um, obviously, growing up in the 90s and seeing the successes of the dynasty, but not really knowing the hardship that he had to go through in the 80s, um, the, the struggle and, and his determination and, and just relentlessness to to overcome that and um, his, his competitive nature to rise up time and time again, um, even seeing what he did when he stepped away from, from basketball um, and, and the success he found in, in minor league baseball, just his, his mental fortitude uh, and that strength to overcome in, in crises, courage and adversity was, was really special to watch. Awesome. Jake, uh, how about you? What, what jumped out at you? Yeah, besides Rodman's Vegas trip, um, I, I would say one of the things that, that jumped out at me is, is kind of surprising. You know, I, I grew up, I guess, looking at MJ with rose-colored glasses as a kid in the 90s. You know, he could never do any wrong. And even with the gambling stuff, I was too young to really understand any of that. But the thing that I thought was interesting with the documentary is that um, the way that he approached and, and kind of treated his teammates, you know, you, you, we actually got to see Michael at practice. Um, that's something that, you know, I'd never really seen all that much about. I knew he was obviously a cutthroat competitor when it came to, you know, the, the game time situations. But the thing that surprised me was the, you know, the, the work ethic, the time that he put in, um, but also the way that he approached uh, the other members of the team that, you know, never really resonated with me before uh, actually diving into the documentary. Michael Jordan's ability or the, the, the demands on Michael Jordan as a human being was incredible. Um, you know, there was obviously the physical demands, but just getting a glimpse into what his life looked like outside of the court or off the court, uh, you know, for any human being, I think that that would take its toll. So I, to me, that really jumped out at me and shed some light on his decision to, to retire, um, probably both times. Uh, and just through this lens of well-being, in terms of his mental preparation and the way that he dealt with the emotional side of everything really, really blew me away. Phil Jackson also, I mean, I've, I've always kind of admired Phil Jackson but not really knowing why beyond the fact that he has 11 rings uh, that I was blown away by, by Phil Jackson. And then Steve Kerr also, I mean, Steve Kerr, I, I look at Steve Kerr completely different in a different light with Phil and, and Michael, let's talk about uh, what I think will be the most controversial question. Maybe not. I don't know, but um, maybe it's, maybe it's a layup. Maybe it's not a half court shot. Like I think it is. If you had to build a team, from scratch, and you could only select Michael Jordan or Phil Jackson, who would you select and why would you select that, that person? You want me to go first? I mean, that's a loaded yeah. question. I, I just, uh, I've gone back and forth since you, you proposed it. I, I think at the end of the day, if I were to pick one and, and, and uh, you know, a huge takeaway is really learning I, I didn't realize how good of a coach Phil Jackson really truly was and, and the X's and O's and seeing him draw up those last second shots for Tony Kukoc to win games when Michael Jordan wasn't playing in them. He's a really good coach, but I would still take MJ. I just felt like there was something about his, his I don't know, um, his presence and his talent and the way that, um, you know, obviously seeing how his game evolved. Um, I just think he's, he was just too good to not build around. Um, and that says a lot because Phil Jackson is the greatest coach, you know, to have done it, but I would, I would take Michael at the end of the day. So I'm glad you took MJ first with the first pick. So he can't come back and make up some kind of motivation that he's going to throw it back in my face, but um, I'll, I'll take Phil. Uh, I'll take Phil with this. Um, I think, I think, you know, Michael willingly followed Phil, you know, 
and ultimately retired because he wasn't going to play for Phil. And I think that kind of speaks volumes for, for the kind of coach that, that Phil was. And it kind of, you know, spoke to the, the leadership and, you know, how you kind of alluded to it, you know, his, his masterful ability as a, as a coach. And I think in the documentary they talked about um, during the 98 season, there were, there were a few highlights uh, around the Orlando playoff series and they, they, they kind of cut to the guys, they weren't at practice, you know, MJ and Ron Harper were out on the golf course. They showed Dennis saying that he was going to Hooters doing whatever Dennis does. Um, but, but Michael made the point, you know, saying that, you know, this is, this is what makes Phil great is that he gives us this day off. He knows we need to, he knows we need a break. He knows we need to rest. Um, and young coaches wouldn't be doing that. We'd be at practice right now. We'd be miserable. And, you know, I think, you know, from a kind of an organizational psychologist standpoint, you know, that's pretty fascinating to me because we talk about the fact that, you know, people, you know, do need a break. You know, you can't keep, you can't keep going all the time. Um, you know, was Phil perfect in, in his, I mean, he has, he has 11 rings. Uh, was he, was he perfect? Of course not. Um, neither was Michael. Nobody's perfect. You know, if you look at Phil with the Lakers, you know, he struggled with Kobe. Kobe, you know, told him to his face that the triangle offense was boring. Um, and you know, that the, the Shaq Kobe years were, were short lived, but, you know, kind of like Michael, you know, Phil's a winner. Um, and you know, coaches can coach longer than players can play, I guess. So that's another reason to, to you know, kind of pick him out. But I think, I think their leadership, you know, is a little bit different. So one of the things that I mentioned that surprised me about, about Michael was the way that he interacted with his teammates, the way he kind of approached them. And I see, I think Phil and Michael are both highly competitive people, but they see competition in kind of two different ways. Um, I think, when most people think about sports and when they think about competition, they think of it as this zero sum game where there's, there's a winner, there's a loser, you know, every NBA game, you know, has one winner, one loser. Um, and that's kind of how that's, that's also making, you know, it makes it tough to kind of bridge the gap between, you know, sports and regular organizations because, you know, most people see being competitive and see competition like this. Um, where you're highly energized, you're trying to bury your opponent, so to, so to speak. Um, but if you actually take a look at, and this is me being a nerd, but if you take a look at the, the Latin root of the word compete, uh, it actually means to strive together to achieve something. Um, it's not to strive against one another to achieve something. And I think that kind of speaks to maybe how Phil, granted, I don't know Phil, I've never interviewed him or anything, but I think that kind of speaks to how Phil looks at competition uh, a little bit differently than Michael. I think Michael really sees, you know, you know, winning in, 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 in basketball is this zero sum game. But I think the way that Phil views basketball, the way that he views leadership and, and leading teams, um, that you're, you're striving for something even greater than an NBA title. So not just the championships, but to lift the performance of the other people around you, to, to become better, um, more decent human beings, to lift up your communities. I think Phil sees that bigger picture um, in, in what sports, you know, really are. And um, I think, you know, with, with Michael, you know, he viewed it as this, hey, I've got to go compete really hard. I've got to step on throats. You know, he wouldn't, you know, let up on a, you know, dollar blackjack game, you know, with his, with his teammates on the plane because he had to win. There was always a clear winner and a loser. And, you know, from a motivation standpoint, you know, Sam, you mentioned, you know, motivation is one of my, one of my areas that, that I do a lot of work with. Um, there's a ton of research out there that shows the more externally motivated you are, uh, the less time you're going to be able to sustain your motivation over the long run. And so if you're chasing after something and Michael was making stuff up in his mind to try and get him to be motivated to play harder, um, you know, that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, ultimately that the, the wick on that candle burns pretty rapidly. And, you know, part of, part of my answer in picking Phil kind of rests on the fact that MJ, um, you know, it, it makes me wonder how much he really did love playing the game of basketball, if it, was, if it was actually really fun for him. I think coaching for Phil, I think he actually really enjoys, you know, the, the, the craft, the art of, of coaching. Um, and so if Michael isn't being internally driven, 
you know, again, he's, he's going to kind of burn himself out, which he ultimately did, uh, you know, right in the middle of his prime. You know, we could sit here and be talking about eight Bulls championships or nine Bulls championships. Um, but, you know, we're, we're talking about the six and, and, and Michael got burnt out. And from, from, from my perspective, you know, kind of, kind of an academic perspective and taking a look at it and saying, yeah, he kind of burned himself out because he's, he's constantly chasing after something that's external. He's not really doing it just because he, he loves and enjoys the game. Because as you saw, there's a lot of stuff outside of the game with the, the media, with all the demands being placed on him. Um, it's, it's kind of easy to see why that maybe the love for the game kind of, kind of gets sucked out a little bit when you're playing an 82 game season and, you know, you're playing a long postseason, And that's probably part of the reason why he chose baseball because it was a new challenge. You know, he, he already ran out of all of these made up excuses to motivate him every single game. So now he has to go chase after something else and playing a game that I would assume was actually inherently fun for him as a, as a kid. And so, you know, from a motivational standpoint, I, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, he, he, he really took, took that approach and that ultimately burned him out. So with Michael, I, if I was taking him with, with the number one pick, I'd be afraid he'd, be, he'd burn out at some point. But uh, with Phil, I just think he loved the, the art and the science of coaching. Um, you know, I think he just loves basketball for the incredible sport that it is that, you know, he's lucky to be a part of and he can make an incredible living from. Um, and, you know, he's, it's one in which he realizes that, you know, it's a team sport that requires more than just, you know, one individual star to carry the load. So uh, that's my long-winded answer about why I picked Phil, but I'm glad Andrew took him with, took MJ with the first pick because, you know, I don't <laughs> want Michael mad at me. Yeah. So, leave, so leave it to the, uh, Jake, I don't know how tall you are, but I know you're in my range, I'm about five, eight and three quarters. And you know, when you say three quarters, you know, you're, uh, you're pretty short. Um, I think you're in that ballpark. Uh, and I don't know if you play basketball or not, but, um, all this to say my vote is for Phil Jackson as well. So the, so the two guys, the two guys who are shorter, did you play basketball, Jake? I did. Yeah. You hoops player. Okay. I was a hoops player. I I, I still, I still play with my, my boy outside in the front yard here. Okay. All right. There we go. Um, Probably the two guys that did not play D1 basketball we'll, we'll <laughs> uh, go, goes, <laughs> puts the vote for the coach. I select Phil because uh, I think Jordan was obviously an amazing basketball player. I think he had incredible skills. I'm not sure how great he would have been if he didn't have Phil Jackson to unlock the greatness. All the stuff that you're talking about, Jake, with the extrinsic or external motiv- motivation, you know, I never looked at it through that lens as, as something that he had to manufacture. I always looked at that as a positive. Um, I mean, intrinsically, I think he had a drive to win, but it's interesting that you point out that he, he wanted to win in other areas or all areas. Um, but yeah, I'm, I don't know if Michael would have become Michael if he didn't have Phil Jackson. I'm, my guess is that he would have been great, but not as great if he didn't have Phil. So Andrew, you've got two two votes right, against it's, it's if valid, you. Wanna, it's if you want a counterpoint, we'll give you the last. He never won a ring. He never won a ring without Phil Jackson. So it's a valid. I guess selfishly, if I were to start the team, I would just want to pick MJ and build around that. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So time machine. You get to jump in a time machine, and you get to go back to any experience uh, that was in the uh, in the series, in the last dance series. Uh, what would you select and and why? What would have been really interesting, like, to, to see Jordan, that, that rookie season when he had injured his foot, to see him back on campus at, at UNC. I think before this, this train left the station and he became untouchable, um, that, that might have been the last kind of period where he was approachable. And just to see this guy, like, rehabbing his foot, here he is, he's – He's not, you know, he's in the NBA, but he's, he's not in the NBA. That would have been a really kind of cool experience and, and moment um, to be around him and, and to see, um, you know, what he was like before all the cameras and, and the hoopla and, and, you know, the success um, that, that he had. I just felt like he was raw and approachable and sort of uh, unscathed by the celebrity status and, and, you know, legacy that he went on to leave. But, um, yeah, there was some, some incredible moments. I mean, any of those 1992 Dream Team buses or, or the Monte Carlo practice, 
um, where you've got, you know, 12 of the best basketball players of all time would have also probably been a really close second just to be around that and see those guys, um, everyone com competing to be that alpha male um, and to kind of watch Jordan silence that, that locker room there um, would have been really interesting as well. Yeah, cool. for me, for me, it would be probably that 92 dream team practice um, just to be there for that. You know, I think, you know, second place for me though, would be, you know, when he dropped 63 in Boston garden, because to see him play against Larry in his prime and, and all those, you know, future hall of famers, I think would have been, would have been a really cool uh, experience to be at. And obviously game six of the 98 finals, just to, to say that you were there, but um, yeah, if I, if I had to pick one, it would probably be the dream team practice just because there were so many great players and, you know, not a lot of people got to watch it. So it would be pretty neat to have been there for that. Yeah, I figured one of you guys would say the 92 practice in Monaco or that whole uh, that whole uh, season or experience in the Olympics. Um, that that would be at the top of my list. The the thing that came to mind that was off the beaten path a little bit is uh, the off season in 90. I think it was 90 after they lost to the to the Pistons and just when that energy that that you could you could feel uh, by watching the uh, the series when Jordan put on 25 pounds and was just pushing hard on everybody. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of lessons in life that happened in that off season. Um, and it's probably an experience where, you know, a lot of those players talk about how he was just a tyrant then, and they hated him then, but now they respect and appreciate what he was trying to accomplish. So just having that view to see the reactions and what the side talk looked like when, when Jordan wasn't in the near shot and what that led to, knowing what that led to, uh, and then the appreciation that those guys had, that's, uh, that's what came to mind for me. Absolutely. Um, we're going to do a little bit of uh, choose your own adventure. We're going to skip the first question. We're going to jump the, to the second question. So we're going to give uh, all of you a chance to participate. What I should have mentioned a little bit earlier, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask or any comments that you'd like to drop in uh, into the chat, please do. We'll carve out some time at the tail end of this. So the, the question that I'm going to put up here for the group, so we've got six dimensions of well-being. I'm going to pull these six up. We're going to let you select uh, what dimension you would like us to talk about. So if you can vote now, please do. All right, it looks like we've got uh, professional and emotional. So why don't we just talk about both? We'll start off with uh, professional first. So Jake, why don't you kick us off with professional? Yeah, when it comes to professional and I guess the, the topic of well-being, you know, kind of goes back to, you know, finding a, a profession, you know, for, for me, that kind of satisfies your, your, your core needs as, as a human being. And when we talk about like psychological needs um, that, we, that we're always striving to, to satisfy because they're never fully fulfilled, but that we're always trying to satisfy. We have our, our individual needs, you know, so our, you know, need for competence or our, our need to, um, you know, tap into to, to other different types of skills to, to um, grow as individuals. Um, you know, social needs. So the, the need to belong to, to a group, the need to, you know, be a part of a collective. And then, you know, kind of our, our basic biological needs that we have as human beings, you know, those, those are the things where a profession can provide, you know, obviously the, the financial part of it to, to help you um, be able to provide for your family, which provides food, you know, shelter, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, if we focus on kind of the individual and social needs, you know, that we kind of can kind of pull from this, you know, you could see, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier with, with, you know, with culture, but, um, you know, being able to be a part of a, a team that it seemed like, especially towards the end, everyone was, was very close knit. It was a very cohesive unit. Um, you know, I think that was a reflection of, you know, not just Michael and Phil, but, you know, Scotty and all the other, other players on the team, you know, having that continuity on the team, guys who have played together for a long time, um, you know, 
for anybody else who's ever you know had any other job, which you all do, you know, think about the you know if you if you've been a part of a couple of different organizations, you know, being a part of those those groups, those teams that have have been together for a long time, you know each other, you know your managers, you know the leaders, you've kind of grown up together, and I think you know that helps to increase you know that that not just satisfaction with the job but um your your overall well-being and then you know for from a professional standpoint you know being challenged you know i think in you know it wasn't even just the practices but you know we talked about you know how certain players can you know help motivate and lift you lift your game up as well you know there are there are people you know from from my from my career currently as well as my old my old career um where you know, they helped me sharpen the saw, increase my skills um, to, to the point past where I thought it was, you know, really possible, you know, or it didn't seem possible, you know, uh, prior to that. And that can be really fulfilling. Um, so being able to, to be in a, in, a, in a professional environment where you are able to fulfill some of those needs, you know, that, that can be a huge thing. And I think in, in, in the documentary, you, you saw that, you saw a lot of players, you know, lifting each other up, you know, you can even look at the the season that Michael was gone and Scotty was trying to trying to lift these guys up to the Eastern Conference semifinals and um, you know taking a different approach to interacting with with the players on the team, uh, but ultimately trying to find ways to uh, to strive together again to 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 make each other better. So I think all that has a lot of a lot of spillover into you know that that professional well being. It's great. Good Andrew, stuff, Jake, on the professional side, I mean, I think that um, it was really interesting. I mean, just to see, um, you know, the 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 extra role that is played by a professional athlete, and particularly the Chicago Bulls and Phil Jackson in this era, and and you know, I mean, how difficult that was. I mean, to be always on, especially for MJ. Um, and how he, he really handled that as, I mean, he arguably one of the quotes I recall from the, the docu-series was that Michael Jordan, you know, was the, was the best at his job than anyone has ever been in their life. And, you know, and I'm just taking that as the acute example of MJ waking up and punching in and the sacrifices that were made. And when you think about the other roles and the other professions that MJ had to play, obviously it didn't go into detail a lot about him, you know, a little bit at the end as, as a father or as a husband or as a son, but, you know, for him to be a professional at number 23 for the Chicago Bulls, like that obviously came with repercussions, you know, outside of that particular profession and role that, um, you know, he, he won't necessarily be remembered for. And I think just toggling that as a human being for MJ and being able to sort of compartmentalize um, the well-being of each of those kind of roles within his profession and then going out every night and, and putting on the uniform and, and being the greatest to do that. Um, I think that came with a price. And, and I just, that's something I thought about and that a lot of people, you know, have to deal with. Obviously, he did it at, a, at, a, at an exceptionally high level with a lot of people watching. Um, and that had to have been a really difficult role. From a professional perspective, I mean, a couple of things jumped out. I mean, one was, was um, you know, Jerry Krause and how, from a professional perspective, Jerry Krause could be cast as a villain, but kind of toward the end, Scottie Pippen could cast him as the best GM to ever lead a team, lead an organization. I think Krause, what Krause had done <clears throat> at the beginning of that last season, the last dance season, kind of the, the negative side of professionalism. Um, it's like the ego got in front of it and that they were mapping that throughout the, the whole series when they're talking about Kraus, how Kraus was always talking about the organization and never giving enough credit to the players and the team. Um, so that jumped out initially. Uh, but then the, the flip side of that is, um, you know, the culture. So Jake, you had touched on this. Andrew, you touched on it a little bit as well. From a culture perspective, uh, you know, when Jordan came back after playing baseball and he, he talked about how pe guys are just joking around, kind of laughing, having fun, riding on the, on the wave of the three championships that they had won prior. And he had, it seen that the culture had shifted. And so, you know, the, the work that 
he did as a leader to kind of reestablish that championship mentality, um, I thought was, was interesting in terms of professionalism and in terms of leadership. Uh, so that jumped out. Emotional. How about emotional? I mean, the, the biggest takeaway of the dimension of emotional well-being, I felt was, was looking at, at Phil Jackson, you know, as, as really the, the leader um, who encompassed uh, and embodied um, sort of this aura and presence that, that really was able to balance and manage that locker room and, and the emotions that went into, you know, it's, it, all, this whole run and, the, and, and all those, those egos and personalities. And for Jackson, and, and it touched on a little bit, obviously he grew up in North Dakota um, and he was, he was very in tune with, you know, sort of the, the Zen Buddhist philosophies um, and, and was able to, to integrate that and, um, and build upon that in a locker room that had so many different personalities and, and people and, and, and connect with them. And I felt like that was a really interesting trait and a, and a really you know, high quality of, of a leader like him um, that I would love to have learned a little bit more. And I know there's other books on Phil Jackson, but like, you know, some of the anecdotes and stories that he was able to just really relate to these guys um, and connect with them. I felt like because of his own personality and I think his, his, of his own self-identity and knowing who Phil Jackson was and the respect that he was, he was, he had gotten as a player now as a coach. Um, I felt like that was really cool and really inspiring and, and it shed a different light and perspective on, on the importance of emotional well-being, especially in a sports locker room and setting um, and being able to connect to that as a, as a powerful, you know, sort of a pillar that, that teams and organizations can grow upon. Yeah, for, for me, from on, on the emotional dimension, I would say, you know, it, it kind of goes to the, the spillover effect. And I think anybody who's traveled for work or, you know, spends any time away from home, you know, it, it, it can be pretty taxing, you know, it can be emotionally draining. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, you know, my, my old job was in a, in a sales focused role and you always felt like you had to be on and, you know, you, you always had to put out, you know, your, put, put your best foot forward. You had to go, you know, you know, try to entertain clients or do whatever you can. And, you know, after a good amount of time, and that's part of the reason why I shifted from, from, uh, financial services to, to, uh, the job that I have now is that, you know, I didn't think that I thought I would, I would end up getting burned out. And, you know, when you think about the last dance and look at what, you know, Michael was going through from a personal standpoint, um, you know, on top of, you know, obviously his, his, his father, you know, getting murdered, you know, he was dealing with, you know, the media constantly, you know, scrutinizing him. And this is, this is before social media. And so the only way people were getting all of their, their information was, you know, that microphone that's in front of them. And, you know, he couldn't, you know, his, his, his best times when he was playing, when he was on the road, uh, was being in his hotel room, you know, relaxing, having a cigar, doing whatever. And I think when we talk about, you know, emotional well-being, it's, it's about, you know, finding that time to, you know, recharge your batteries. Everybody needs it. Michael needed it. Michael needed it to the point where he burnt out and had to go do something else where he wasn't going to be, you know, as much under a microscope. Um, and, you know, I think for, for everybody else who's, who's not Michael, not playing in the NBA, you know, that's, that's one that I think, you know, a lot of times we, we stretch ourselves a little too thin and that can have a spillover effect, you know, to the way that we interact with our families at home, uh, you know, from, you know, being, being parents, being spouses, you know, good family members, you know, you can have bad days at work and that can transfer back to, you know, how you are at home. But, you know, the, the, you know, the, the opposite happens as well. You saw it with Jordan when he was getting, you know, all these, you know, accusations about going to Atlantic City and gambling until three in the morning and, you know, the, all of the other things that, that surrounded that where, you know, he was getting frustrated with it. He was tired of, you know, asking or answering questions about it. And so, um, you know, the, the fact that there are things that are outside of work that can kind of spill over into work um, that can have, an, you know, from, from an emotional standpoint, but also, you know, spilling over the other way, you know, I thought that was, uh, pretty, pretty present in the, uh, uh, in, in, in the documentary that I thought was pretty interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, when I think of emotion, I think of um, emotional intelligence. I think both of you guys are touching on this, right? So just having self-awareness, having the uh, internal discipline, the internal awareness of like, how am I feeling and what do I need to do to put the mask on me first before I start to think about others? I think that's important. Um, and then the other side is just the relationship management side, like the external side of emotional intelligence. So every time Dennis Rodman came into the story, it was like, okay, th this is a highly emotional intelligent team um, that just gets it, that understands it. And I, I think there's a lot of lessons through that lens of, of Rodman and how they treated Rodman. Just Rodman being Rodman is one conversation. Rodman being an adversary from their, their, their uh, most hated team that was pushing these guys to the ground. That's a whole nother story. So the fact that they actually first embraced him, brought him onto the team, and then just let him be him, I think exhibits a lot of emotional intelligence. Um, and then just seeing Jordan, um, that episode, I can't remember if it's six or seven, when he was talking about how he's, a, you know, that's the way he played. And if they don't like it, then, then uh, you know, then you don't have to take it that way. And then he breaks. Uh, and gets up and leaves and it was like, okay, this guy isn't a robot. He's a human being. So I, the emotion side of it um, in terms of just the raw emotion, I, I thought that was really insightful about uh, about the, the documentary as well. In closing here in the last uh, couple minutes, if anyone has any questions, please drop them in chat. Andrew and I talked about this on the mini series. Would they have won eight? Would they have won uh, or sorry, would they have won seven? Four in the row, let's say. Would yeah. they have won the fourth in a row? After the last dance, if Jerry Krause wouldn't have committed to ending it, even if they undefeated, and they come back and would have needed to play the Spurs, which had David Robinson and young Tim Duncan, uh, would they have won? Would they have beat the Spurs? There. So, Andrew, why don't you – if you – have you changed your tune? I'm going to put this out as a poll also. I, I felt like, I felt like they would win it. I, I just, I don't know. I think that um, just that momentum, I think that, I mean, I know they were all burnt out and they were drained, um, but I, I really do feel like um, they would have put it together. And I, I, I think that it was just a lot of it had to do with, with MJ and where he was at and where he was, he was, he had just gotten to a point in his career where, he was playing, you know, like sort of a game within the game. Um, the team really knew each other. They probably would have picked up another really strong role player. Um, I just felt like they would have got it. But that's obviously will be the, you know, forever debated bar question. Um, it sure would have been fun to have seen them at least try. But that's the, the business of professional sports that oftentimes people, you know, forget about as a fan that, um, they had an obligation to, to do what they felt was best for the organization. And they, they chose that direction. We'll never know. And obviously it was interesting to hear Michael Jordan say that that's just one of the things he's just cannot accept, you know, is that sort of serenity to, uh, to move on without a, without an attempt, but um, it's open for debate. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to play devil's advocate here, but, you know, I'm such a Bulls homer that I would, I, I hope that they would win. I, I think, I think the thing that would be going against them would be, you know, the fact that, you know, partly age, but partly I think Jordan was getting burned out again. You know, I think that was part of it. Even if Krause was accepting of Phil coming back and, you know, that, that would be the, the contingency, right? Phil coming back. Um, would they have been able to pay some of their other role players and this and that on one-year contracts? I'm not really sure. And I mean, that was a good Spurs team, a young Spurs team, you know, for, for that. Uh, so it would have been, it definitely would have been a battle. So, you know, it's almost, it's almost good that they uh, kind of ended on such a high note. So we didn't have to see them lose on the way out. Yeah, it was surprising that uh, Jordan's response on whether they would have uh, or w whether he would have continued playing. Um, yeah, we've got a lot of homers on here. 71% of the votes are yes, 29% are no. Uh, I don't know. 
that was a pretty good team that they would have had to play. I, you know, if I think if the team would have stayed intact, they'd have a shot at it. But I don't think it's as as easy. Um, would have been as easy as as uh, any of the prior six. So, Jake, can you read the question? Let's close something out. Yep. Uh, so it says, any thoughts on the attitude of standing up to Jordan and not being intimidated? There were some in interesting interviews with Kerr, the punching incident, and Stockton and Reggie Miller. Imagine that this takes courage and mental toughness to be strong against someone so legendary. Um, it's interesting, too, because after, after the, the documentary aired, there's been a lot more that's come out about, you know, what was supposedly true, false, maybe not complete about the, the documentary. Um, and there have been quite a few players who have come out and basically said that Michael uh, would pick on, you know, guys who he knew wouldn't stand up, get, you know, stand up to him. So he, he, he tried it with Robert Parrish, apparently, uh, the chief who was in that, uh, that final season. And uh, the, the chief was having none of it and basically told him, hey, I've got, I've got quite a few rings too, so you better get out of my face. And that, I think that was the end of that. So, you know, there was, there's, there's been some of that that's been kind of back and forth about, you know, standing up to Jordan. Um, but, you know, I, not having been there, I can't really, can't really speak to too many other ones. Well, I was just in, impressed with, I mean, it just says a lot about a guy like John Stockton and how good he truly was when he's, I mean, it, you know, and, and I think that's what it had to, it, it took to be able to compete against him um, was, you know, to, to not back down. Um, and those guys were all very good at, at what they did in their own right. But um, yeah, it was really interesting to, to hear, hear that, that Reggie Miller clip. And obviously um, we know where he stands, but the respect that, that he got that MJ, you know, earned from, from his peers um, and still today um, how much, you know, has of his legend is still embodied in pop culture and shoe and, and current NBA. Um, yeah, he, he was pretty special, but those that did stand up to him and had their night, obviously they'll talk about it forever. <laughs> is there another question in queue? It's a, it's a question. Yeah. I think it's more just a comment. Um, Chang Hawk read, uh, I think that MJ ran out of competitive reason for more championships. If you look at who would be next, it would have been Bill Russell. You love Bill Russell. If you saw MJ's last MVP trophy, receiving it from Bill Russell, he had the widest grin on his face. And uh, I do, I do remember that, that uh, portion when he got the MVP. Yeah. What Bill, Bill had 11, 11 rings. Is that Bill Russell's number? So yeah, that's pretty much, that probably would have been unattainable. Uh, had it wanted gone into 2002, 2003, um, but obviously a different era. Um, but, you know, again, we'll never know that that, that seventh, that seventh ring then, you know, it would have been great to see, but obviously it also would have maybe possibly tarnished their legacy. If they had lost, um, they wouldn't be remembered as the undefeatables and, and such. Yeah. I mean, I, you guys have probably seen this already, but the next last dance that's coming out, the next documentary is about Tom Brady. Right. And the, um, I, I just, I just know it's about Tom Brady. I don't know what else. Uh, so the jury's still out on his legacy, right? And the, you, you forget that Jordan came back and played for the Wizards. I mean, I had completely mm -hmm. forgot about that. Um, so, you know, the, this idea of going out on top, I think, has some, some um, kind of myth to it. Uh, sounds great. You think of guys like Brett Favre, who <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't go out on top. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Brady's career. Uh, down in, in Tampa Bay. But uh, just in closing here, guys, any final comments or, or before we wrap this up? Oh, I just thought it was, yeah, I thought it was a really cool, um, you know, piece of history and piece of culture. And I, I, Obama talked on that on the end, you know, the impact that this had on, on just the Americana and the spirit of, of, of our country's culture and identity and obviously what it, what it did, you know, this period of the 90s, what it did for the game of basketball and the globalization um, it was also very timely. It was really cool to, to be able to, you know, sit down and Sunday nights, have something to look forward to in the old school kind of scheduled, you know, format. Um, and it was a well put together, you know, piece of, of, of film and cinematic history that I greatly appreciated. And it's been a lot of fun, Jake, you know, getting your perspective from how this embodies and kind of a, a microcosm of organizations and, and change today in our society and how a lot of the lessons 
um, that we learn while watching this can be applied in the six dimensions of well-being. Yeah, I mean, to, to echo your point, it was kind of nice to have, you know, something on the schedule every week. I can't remember the last time I had something that I actually looked forward to, to watching, like, on, on the real time every week. Um, and, you know, just like every other, you know, documentary, it wasn't, it wasn't completely perfect if it left out a lot of stuff that, you know, still, I mean, they could have easily done 20 episodes and that would have made us very happy. But um, yeah, I, I love getting to watch it. And from, you know, from, from the lens that I'm kind of looking at it from an organizational team standpoint, uh, it's, it's just fascinating to see some of the, some of the raw footage of, you know, some of the interviews as well as, you know, just the, the real time practices, games, the live action. Um, it was, it, it was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, so guys, thank you for participating in this. Thank you everybody for participating. Uh, you know, I'll just leave you with, with one final comment. Um, if you go back and watch the series, which probably most won't do, but if you do, you know, I'd encourage you to look at it through the lens of, of well-being. Uh, it adds a different twist. And Andrew and I talked about this in these three, this three-part mini-series. My engagement in looking at, um, Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, Jerry Krause, uh, Steve Kerr, all these players was, was definitely different by, by through this lens of well-being, purpose, uh, leadership. You know, it, it definitely affected the way that I engaged with the theater of all this. And, and it's an impacted the way that I engage in other elements as well. So um, if you go back and watch it, I'd encourage you to watch it through that lens. The next thing that you're watching that kind of allows you to decompress maybe, um, I'd encourage you to engage uh, that uh, through the lens of well-being. And what you'll find is there are going to be nuggets that you can pull out of, um, of that engagement to help you uh, live with more intention. So with that, uh, thank you for your participation. And once again, thank you to Phoenix Basketball for sponsoring. Uh, this event. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Jeff.